0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, guys. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. How are you doing, Dr. Parks? And joining us today, Dr. Alan Atkins. He's a second year psychiatry resident. He worked with children in the foster system before attending medical school at Brown University. Currently leads a research team investigating wilderness therapy as an alternative to mass incarceration. Hi, Alan. Hey, Dr. Parks. Thanks for joining us again. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent UCR, UCR Counseling and Psychological Services, UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about this. is going to be part two of nature-based therapy or ecotherapy. Um, before we get to that, though, I I want to just see if there's anything that, uh, any updates, any current events, any things that have been in your mind that you want to kind of talk about, uh, interesting factoids that you think the listeners might enjoy. I just kind of want to throw that out there.
1: Um, I did read this article from the New York Times by a doctor, written by a doctor Friedman. Um, that was just kind of postulating whether some of the depression people are feeling during quarantine is actually more of a boredom rather than a clinically diagnosable depression what do you guys think about that
2: I think it's very possible um, I you know we're doing in my year now clinic she's outpatient for the whole year and although I have seen it, the race increase for anxiety, panic attacks. I haven't seen it so much for depression. So maybe it is what you're saying is more like a, even a, what we call an adjustment disorder, which is, doesn't meet criteria for depression or just being bored and having, you know, unusual circumstance, circumstances, doubt, fear and everything that is causing some of the symptoms, but not to meet the criteria for a major depressive disorder.
3: I wonder, do you guys think that, like, boredom could be kind of a, a stepping stone on the way to depression?
0: Definitely, 100%. Yes. I think so, yes. I th- yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, boredom could be a, just another way of just saying I have no motivation for anything, which is, it could be um, what's called anhedonia, or it just could be just low energy, yeah. So, like, yeah, I, I agree with that person. I think that you know, boredom could be just another uh, more colloquial way of saying you know, I just don't feel like doing things anymore. Have but, you, you guys
1: know, been? C- oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no. I was just gonna talk about that. You know, the CDC um, released a morbidity and mortality report. You know, when they talk about death and things like that, and they talked about how there has been been an increase in substance abuse, mental health conditions, including depression. I mean, they compared it with. Uh, second quarter of 2019, last year, and it, it compared to then it was 6.5%, now it's 24.3% depression. So that's quite a jump.
1: Mm, yeah, that's huge.
0: And also, and also same thing with anxiety and um, also a, a suicide rate. Suicidal, suicidal thinking has increased also quite a bit to 10%.
1: I have noticed among my um, my patients, you know, I'm a child fellow, so I'm seeing a lot of school-age children, um, just pretty much ubiquitously, the kids that I'm talking to are so excited to go back to school. Mm. Like, not that they're doing school in person, but just the online classes, they're really excited about the fact that school is starting again. So they've been in school now for like a week or two weeks, and... Um, they're they're just so much brighter and happier.
2: Is this independently of whether or not they go to school online, or I guess most schools are online right?
1: You know what's interesting is when we're talking about like online versus in person I have noticed and I was talking to one of my attendings today about it actually that like I've noticed among my kids with ADHD that they've found that the online courses it's a mix some of them feel like it's just not engaging enough uh, where Mm -hmm. they can focus and then the little ones I've noticed um, like it because it's a little bit more flexible Um, they're able to kind of like take breaks more um, more freely like when they want to or when they need to and then they can just kind of like run around their house get their willies out and then like go back to work huh. have you guys noticed I, I mean you guys aren't seeing kids right now huh?
2: no but I just wondering what what could explain that, that difference that you see that some people kids with ADHD like versus other ones don't like. And I'm just thinking that maybe, I, I know, usually ADHD people have or kids have trouble following instructions, but I wonder if, if it's probably what you're saying, that it's like now you have the freedom to not follow instructions all the time as well, unless the parents are just right on top, you know, of, of your academics. I mean, academics, but yeah.
1: Yeah, right. Um, even, i was sorry, I was going to say even the kids who don't have ADHD but just have, you know, different learning styles. If they don't have that learning style where they do well with um, being lectured at visually, it's even more difficult to maintain attention. So I've talked to some people, some like college-age students who are actually choosing to delay enrolling this semester in courses um, and hoping that next semester, you know, quarantine will be lifted and then mm-hmm. they'll consider going to school. Oh, I
2: see. Yes. I mean, I'm not a kid anymore, but I agree that I'm having a... I'm liking it better to be able to do clinic from home four out of five days, because mm-hmm. then I have the freedom of, like, do my things with the, my appointments. And then, like I say, if I need to take a quick 10 minute nap or grab something to eat or something, everything's right here. So. Right.
0: Yeah, certainly the uh, freedom or the, the opportunities exist to, to all these new ways of learning and, and, and of working. But yeah, but as far as the kids with education, a lot of the onus is placed though on the parents and the parents, uh, y- you know, time and working with them as you extend the, you know, the, the day or short, you know for yeah. for, for ed- being educating them. All right, well, why don't we talk about our topic today of nature-based therapy or ecotherapy? Um, and our, our expert co-host here, Alan, Dr. Alan Atkins, expiring um, I, I, I you know, expert, one of the, <laughs> expiring expert. Sure. <laughs> uh, you you one of the things. Yeah, one of the possible tie-ins is just um, you know, as we have this shelter-in-place stuff, and as you kind of get used to staying at home and working from home, and everything's convenient there. I mean, I, you, you know, you you might have this tendency to not get out as much as well as just, just restrictions to going out and restrictions of camping, especially with other people. Um, you know, I, I camped briefly um, last month and it, it, it was a little bit stressful. It was, it, it was down, I, I, you know, we're from California, so uh, it was about maybe half full, the campsite was about half full, but it was still pretty stressful. But um, that can lead to a disconnection with nature. What are your thoughts about that, Dr. Atkins?
3: Yeah, I think that one of the things I struggle with in, uh, in describing the need for nature-based therapy to people is that it is, um, there's so many reasons why it's helpful and, and necessary That's and, and some of them seem obvious uh, and one of them I think is that, is is like, you know, the technology having kind of crept insidiously and increasingly into every part of our life and um, makes it so that this is you know ever in of ever increasing importance but that point feels like kind of a one that will be acknowledged by people as obvious or one that's kind of uninteresting and so i rarely talk about it but i think it's maybe one of the most important points
0: yeah and so if you, if you were designing a program of nature-based therapy to help with the problems that we were just talking about, most other, depression, anxiety are, are going through the roof, basically, how would nature-based therapy be utilized for some of these folks that are, are really struggling with the shelter-in-place restrictions?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right.
0: I'm, I'm I pick, just, I, that's one. how I start my interviews. I started by putting this super broad question. Really no, this really involves a lot question. of complex I'm things. Just
3: struggling, I, I'm struggling to pick from my thoughts. And the one I'm going to go with is this. So, so, when you meditate or when you go on a backpacking trip, you are um, kind of creating a situation where you're going to be late, you're, where you're, you're committing to something that may at some point become involuntary. So when you go on a backpacking trip, you leave and you say, okay, I'm going to get myself one day out at least, or far enough out from the parking lot that if I have some kind of a a need later on, I'm going to need to deal with it with what I have. And when you embark on, you know, a long-term meditation retreat, you're you're kind of doing the same thing. You're acknowledging, there's probably going to be some point when I'm uncomfortable with meditating 14 hours a day, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it till it's over. And, and, um with depression and anxiety there's a an anxiety about doing what we need to actually do to treat the illness and with depression there is a lack of motivation you could call it abulia it sort of relates to the article we discussed just now about boredom and depression there's all these words associated with that that have to do with motivation like anhedonia abulia um in the extreme i think they call it uh like dyskinetic mutism um and, no, I
0: want to explain some of these uh, terms you're using.
3: So I think, so So the, the way bulia I think, was explained to me in, in medical school was in some forms of dementia, particularly you could take this person's favorite food and put it in front of them and they would not move the foot to get it. Um, and I, I can't speak to the, you know, the areas of the brain that are behind that. But nature-based therapy is kind of, Uh, putting you in a place where you have to be mindful for some time, where you're committed to being out there and actually doing healthy things for yourself um, for a much longer time than a one-hour therapy session.
0: Now, that's really uh, fascinating how, you know, yeah, that you put yourself in a position where you're drawn to do some of these things because you must live and you must survive. In the wilderness. Can I ask um, a question?
1: I'm I'm wondering like how how many of these kids, like what percentage of these kids are there voluntarily versus hmm. like they are just choosing like a choice from a list of options? Like is it you you know, are some of these kids you mentioned it's a alternative to going to a like a criminal justice system?
3: Like that's that. what I would envision for it. I think it's largely an alternative to going to residential. It's something that's often offered when residential treatment hasn't worked for things like conduct disorder, substance abuse. So um, these
1: kids aren't uh, charged with anything. They're, they're not being sentenced to wilderness therapy. So
3: there are nature options in the justice system like fire camps and like dive training. And right. there may be there, – there have been – Wilderness therapy programs trialed in the United States, but particularly that are in Scandinavia, as alternatives to incarceration. But more frequently, nature based therapy is a, or, or wilderness therapy, which is a subtype of nature based therapy, is a fancy option for um, kids whose parents have arrived at that as, the, as uh, the, uh, a hopeful way to treat their substance problems or their um, characterological or personality disorder linked to problems largely.
1: I guess I'm having a hard time understanding, like, who has access to this now?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And that's what I want to do is expand that. So right now, um, I was just reading an article, uh, let me see if I can find who it was by. I was just reading an article uh, by Keith Russell, Um, oh, he's actually, I think, uh, one of the bigger researchers in this field. But he it's talking about how this is generally um, available to upper class people, but also middle class people that have, in his words, like, uh, you know, mortgaged their homes and and done things like that in order to. So the
1: families are paying for this.
3: Yeah. Um, So families are paying for this. It's not I mean, there's not a lot of access for this as a public option. This generally tends to be an option for people who are paying for it pretty much cash only in some way, Okay. which is uh, you
2: bring up, uh, and, and
1: is yeah, it available ahead, ahead. in all States or
3: I would think not. I would think that, uh, availability depends on where there's a program. I think right, I, there's lots and lots of nature based therapy programs, but then wilderness therapy is a subtype of that. And the article I was looking at was, is rather old, but it said, I think I think it said 48 programs in the U S at this time, I, I imagine that number has blown up since then. Um, but, yeah, I saw another number that 10,000 people a year in the U.S. are, are going through mm. some form of nature-based therapy. Um, I think that article was Psychology Today, and I don't think I remember seeing an actual citation for that number. So take it with a grain of salt. But.
1: So ideally, like what – in an ideal world, where do you see this being used for who?
3: Oh, man, that's awesome. That's a great question. So in an ideal world – I, I, I happen to have a pretty paternalistic view on this. I, I, I think almost everyone needs more nature in their life. Um, and in an ideal world, our societal values would be such that everyone would be aware of that. And then you could go out into these programs where um, the daytime would be gathering the resources you need for the nighttime and, and kind of increasingly, if, with increasing efficiency, you know, you come in, you're struggling, because you're out there in the woods, you're cold, and you're uncomfortable, and uh, if this is your first time, let's say, and and uh, you start, and then there's instructors, and the instructors start showing you how to do some, you know, they show you how to build a fire, they show you how to gather some things that could be um, used as food, depending on how kind of uh, rustic the program is, and then in the night and then you do that during the day and then every night there's some programming right some maybe if we're talking about a therapeutic context so some group therapy some skills building some reflection and then as you go through time you gain a sense of mastery over yourself and 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 the the processes you need to get yourself firewood and all that stuff and you start to have more time and by the time you have more time You've now had a few classes on mindfulness. You've now had a few classes on how to use that time in a way that's reflective. And maybe there's a few iPads with solar panels, and hey, you get a free hour with the iPad each day, and yeah, you can use that iPad to go on Instagram or whatever, or would you rather use that iPad to learn how to make the fire more efficiently? Or, you know, I think people's, when, when people have an hour with that and some time to reflect on what they're gonna use it for, we might see, people adopting the use of information technology to gather knowledge in new ways that especially adolescents aren't currently doing a whole lot and
1: just practicing prioritizing
3: is yep. a skill yep i mean and if yeah
0: and I, well if you're just joining us i just want to briefly butt in if you're just joining us, you listen to let's get psyched on kucr and we're talking about nature-based therapy uh, with the gang, but also co host uh, Dr. Alan Atkins. Go ahead. That didn't
1: Alan. really answer my question, though. Like, in an ideal world, who has access to this?
3: I apologize. I will attempt uh-huh. I, to. I'll
0: answer it for you, rich people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that, or... no,
3: no, that's not the ideal world. She asked about the ideal you world. Know. That's the current. Oh, world, the ideal world. So, well, what I'm working the for. The ideal
0: world, you have an option for everything. That it will be covered by
2: insurance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That'll be Thank the ideal world. Exactly. Because it takes, if you can afford to pay, and this is what I have in terms of numbers, if you can afford to pay twenty to $30,000 for a, like sometimes a month or a couple of months at a time, uh, if you can afford that for your kid and you kid needs it, then yes. But I think part of also what is not covered by many insurances from what I got is that there wasn't enough evidence. And I think there's, you know, it started with like this kind of camps that you said, then it moved to, oh, it seems to be working and, you know, moving more to therapy, including CBT, all the other things that you talk about. But then... And then the regulation like agencies start to look into it to standardize more the practice and also exactly. look at the data but i don't think if there's enough data to say or maybe there's nobody doing it to the point where it's ready or to show the insurance says, hey look this works very well in this kind of situations and then we're going to use it and cover and pay for it
3: yeah what you said was was right on so so I would say there is enough data right now, um, or at least on a lot of things. What I'm looking at particularly is medication management. What my, my latest project is medication management and wilderness therapy, because I don't think there's really anything known about what's going on from program to program with that. But there's lots of data. Like we found in our first right. literature we review, we found 200 English language articles on adolescence and wilderness therapy that were kind of within the criteria that we had set. There, there's a lot of data showing this stuff works, but um it's not it's not by the medical field it's largely done by social work it's and it's um it's not i mean right now i think there's a a lot of structures that are the way they are because they've been the way they are, but also that are creating jobs and profiting off of being the way that they are, right? So like addiction rehab is one of the, when right. people talk about wilderness therapy being really expensive and is it worth the insurance money? Well, what's the alternative here? We're talking about people who failed multiple residential stays or rehabs. And this stuff, I think, and, and I don't have data to back this, although there may be the data to back this. I haven't seen it in the English language. This stuff may work better than inpatient rehab. Um, and it has or, clear segues to step down programs like you do well in wilderness therapy. You can go to California Conservation Corps where you're going around doing conservation work, getting paid away from drug temptations. And so this stuff, if, if you consider that it works um, in Scandinavia, it works to have a much, much lower. It, it's been shown to have a much, much lower recidivism rate when we associate it with the more the incarceration population it's arguable that this stuff will turn out to be considerably cheaper.
1: And I would like to make a plug for one of our earlier episodes. I think it was like number 50 or something where we had a guest who talked about the corruption of addiction rehabilitation centers.
3: Oh, I, I yeah. I, I to mean, check that one out.
0: definitely. Um, how dare you not listen to our podcast, uh, <laughs> Alan, but anyway, um, no, I think ideally we do want to move to something other than the residential treatment group home. Uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, at least in California, we have been moving uh, away from that for at least the last 20 years or so. It We're was trying to find 50 different. <laughs> there you go note that note that in your in your phone on on. <laughs> um, uh, but i yeah at least for the last 20 years we've been moving away from incarceration and group homes and the, the residential treatment where you get a lot of folks together and then you pay people you know super low you know, minimum wage basically or, or close to it to to, to monitor folks and kind of gauge them in treatment yeah there needs to be some outside the box thinking it sounds like this is an emerging Kind of program it but i agree with tosha in that this the one of the limiting things would be money and resources but i see your point that if we put our money into this then you the return would be such where it would actually do some real lasting change
3: right yeah right. but i mean really i think edgar's summarization of it is is right on and and what you said edgar is exactly why i do what i do i feel that there needs it's not necessarily that I do think more research needs to be done, and more research with control groups needs to be done. I mean, partly you don't have huge pharma companies, and you don't have huge you don't have a huge right. industry funding this. There is an industry; mm-hmm. they are getting organized slowly, um, mm-hmm. but it's not the way it has been for other entities, and. Uh, I think part of it is there's data out there that just needs to be synthesized in a way, you mm-hmm. know, using meta analyses to show that hey, actually, there's enough data that mm-hmm. this really should be taken more seriously than it currently is.
1: Can I ask? Do you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Edgar. Go ahead,
3: and I'll follow up after you.
1: Oh, I, I'm I'm just wondering like if this is, it seems like um, a therapy that's useful for all sorts of situations, addiction, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant. Why is your focus on Uh, alternative to uh, prison reform as as prison reform
3: yeah thank you for asking that so the prison system in our country is so totally um, I'll say inhumane and so it's low-hanging fruit it's it's a clear I think one of the ways to look at where we need to grow and learn is if you look at variability across the world of, of countries and and especially the countries that get um, har, high ROI for their healthcare dollar, namely you know Scandinavia, Costa Rica, um, Uruguay, uh, Israel, and and uh, um, those areas are doing different things than we are with this stuff. You know, I mean, it's clear that our there it's an area I think where we have a huge number of people that that need to be treated in some way and currently they're in prison.
1: So this could be yes. like um, one of the programs we're advocating for when we're talking about reallocating funds to the police.
3: Yes. Yes. That's I think that's absolutely true.
0: This yeah. could be included in the reform.
3: Yeah. Although I, I'm yeah I mean I think that that issue requires a lot of careful thought and I think um a lot of police funds need to be used for police training on compassion and, uh, you know, soft power and community building. And, th- you know, I, th- I think that uh, probably the training. <laughs> are, you, are, you <laughs> are you digging a hole? Uh, are yeah, 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 yeah. like? you digging okay. a hole? Alan? Is that what it sounds like? OK. What did you <laughs> want to ask? Edgar? It's OK. Yeah,
0: what were oh, going to okay.
2: Say? I was just going to ask in terms of, like, the data, right? Because is there any... I, I came across the statistics, like, you know, like, in the short term and what they're doing there through those months, they, like, 83% of people are doing better, 58%, like, very well, um, maybe 17%, 50% still struggling. Sometimes they stay longer because of that. But is there anything, like, long term? Because that's what I didn't completely come across, there was one study I think by the Journal of Therapeutic Schools and Programs uh, by Dr. Ellen Beh- Behrens in 2010, this is old I guess, but they tracked people for six years but only for the six months follow-up after that and they said, yeah, about six months after the program they were doing still very good mm-hmm. emotional, like with their emotions, life skills, interpersonal relationships, self-confidence, and emotional control. But only like six months out of that. Is there
3: anything? And if you don't know, it's fine. But is there anything long term so
2: far, or that is starting to be looked at?
3: There is. There's longer term data, and you know, because we our lit review was fairly extensive, I, I don't have in front of me like the, an immediate answer to that question in terms of the author. But there were ones that uh, showed longer term. You're right. There's nothing really long term. But there were ones that show they did follow it long enough to show. The effects from nature-based therapy last longer than the effects from other types of therapies, including residential stays, and um, Mm -hmm. a lot of the effects were sustained. They did start to see drop-off, but they didn't see complete um, sort of return to the prior state, And, and... Part of it is that the questionnaires that they're using to follow up after are designed for youth, and once the youth are no longer youth, that can create a problem in terms of how do you keep following these people. I think that problem wouldn't be too hard to solve, but yeah, it it hasn't been tracked as far out as one would like.
0: I, th- I I yeah, you know, think, uh, you know, as we kind of wind down uh, here and get to the end of the show, I think um, it's important to also recognize that there's a big difference between wilderness therapies and, and um, nature-based therapies and boot camp. I know we kind of said that before, but I think that maybe these, these programs that you're talking about, Alan, can, can just, un- unfortunately, because they both take place outside uh, and they have people, uh, you know, camping outside or backpacking, that, you know, some of these are these boot camp programs, which have been on lists of of uh, detrimental therapies de- right, uh, right. that absolutely do not help where it's uh, where they're they're kind of uh, you know kind of berating it's like it's almost, it's you know to think about a military boot camp where you're kind of tearing the person down and then you know making them do a bunch of chores and then building them back up where it has proven not to work and those can be quite damaging and they, and these things which have involved like you said last week it involves you know connecting with nature because um, you know nature uh, has a kind of a self-correcting, self-regulating kind of process to it. And as you become more connected and deeper into that process, there will, there will be change in your mental health. Yeah. I the, think there's-, there's
2: physical activity too, right? Absolutely. Physical activity, endorphins, you know, uh, brain therapy, a trophic peck tag and other things that can also help with mood as well.
3: The, the nature-based therapy world is highly variable, but I think the spirit of the nature-based therapy world as it currently exists is highly humanistic and exploratory, and it's, it's a far cry from the problem that used to... I, I mean, the, the boot camps, I think, are less of a, of a thing than they, than they were, I think, largely because the public is aware of what you're
0: talking about. And that'll be the last word. Thank you for joining us here on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Uh, today we talked about nature-based therapy, ecotherapy, and thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshiyamaguchi, Dr. Edgar Ortega, and our resident. Sa- semi-expert on nature-based therapy, Dr. Alan Atkins. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Good. And Al, if you, you have comments or questions about the show or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks to him. And just reminding you, Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.